0: You know, Jesus said some pretty incredible, amazing things when he walked this earth and and some very challenging things as well. Convicting statements. A lot of them are found uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters five, six and seven of Matthew. Uh, This this past week, we read many of us read through Matthew as we are continuing our uh, community Bible experience as we are reading through the New Testament over a period of eight weeks. And today we come to a a passage that's just read that comes out of the beginning, the the first third or so of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And here's a sampling of some of the, the, the challenging statements that Jesus makes in this sermon. I'll tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other one, also. Many, many other challenging, convicting statements that Jesus makes. But perhaps none is more challenging and more difficult to apply than Jesus' statement that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I'm going to begin with a story because um, one of many, because stories involve real people in real situations uh, with real reactions, and loving your enemy is something that cannot be left in the realm of the abstract. It it must be played out in real life, and stories help us to see how that can be played out in our lives. You might remember the story of Terry Anderson. He was an Associated Press reporter uh, back in the '80s. He was held hostage in Lebanon uh, for nearly seven years. He was chained to a wall. Uh, he suffered through sickness. And he endured mental torture. He desperately missed his, his home and his family. Through his imprisonment, he was given one book to read, the Bible. He read it hungrily, looking for hope and for strength just to endure each day. And then one day he came across these words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those words were like a slap in the face to Anderson. Jesus wanted him to love his captors, to to pray for them, to return evil with good. On December 4th, 1991, he was finally released. and The media surrounded him and peppered him with questions. Uh, What was it like? How do you feel? What are you going to do next? One reporter, however, asked a question that silenced everybody. Can you forgive your captors? As Anderson paused, the words of the Lord's Prayer ran through his mind. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. Yes, Anderson replied, as a Christian, I'm required to forgive no matter how hard it may be. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, we'll probably never face imprisonment in a foreign land. We will most likely never be forcibly separated from family or home for almost seven years. Most of us will never face the kind of uh, persecution that Anderson did, or countless Christians do today, in places in Asia, or Middle East, Africa, other parts of the world. So, how do we apply Jesus' words to to love our enemies? Let's take a look at the context first. When Jesus preached these words, Israel was under Roman oppression and had been for some time. There would have been smoldering resentment. Even blatant rebellion in some areas against the Romans, the Romans were public enemy number one. If Jews didn't toe the line, swift and brutal punishment would have come. And it was into that situation, that context that Jesus tells a crowd, which no doubt included a majority of Jews, that they were to love and pray for their enemies, insinuating especially their Roman oppressors. It had to be a difficult statement to hear, had to be difficult to accept. Let's take it and put it in our age today. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination for a second. Put on your imagination caps. And imagine that ISIS has taken control of the U.S. We have to pay outrageous taxes. Okay, maybe that doesn't take too much imagination. When you travel, you routinely get stopped. You uh, get, get grilled. You get, in, you get asked questions, asked for documentation. You are looked down upon. You feel like a, a foreigner in your own land. You get intimidated and bullied on a regular basis. You have to pledge allegiance to another flag and another ruler. And if you step out of line, you're bullied, you're jailed, beaten, maybe even killed. What if that was our situation? How would you feel toward those people who are occupying our country? Well, that's what Jesus was asking, telling the Jews to do. Love your enemies and pray for those people, especially those those Roman oppressors. Love your enemies. That would have gone against every prevailing societal convention concerning how you were to treat those who were bitterly opposed to you. And what was the prevailing wisdom? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, one of the first things that pops into my mind when I read that is, where have you heard that said and who said it, right? Well, over time, some of the teachings of the Old Testament have been twisted, misinterpreted, or just plain ignored by some of the Israel's uh, religious teachers. Because one of the overarching themes of the Old Testament is not to hate your enemy, but rather to show kindness and love to him or her. But this idea of hating your enemies was being espoused and supported by some of the Pharisees. And, and Old Testament passages that taught otherwise were being ignored. For example, Leviticus 19:18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Even more explicit is Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, lest you think this this burning coals thing is sweet revenge, the idea here is that an enemy would would be shamed into changing their ways by your good deeds, your love for them. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. That's what's natural isn't it? That's what our our culture expects. But Jesus is countercultural. And he calls us to be countercultural as well. But I tell you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let's again apply it to our circumstances. You may not count them as enemies, but surely there are people in your world that you uh, have a hard time loving. And remember, there's a difference, a huge difference between tolerating somebody and getting along with them and actually loving them. So how would you respond if Jesus told you to love your ex-spouse who cheated on you, who isn't much of a parent to your kids, who badmouths you whenever opportunities arise? How would you respond if Jesus told you to love the person at school who gossips about you, who taunts you, who makes you feel like dirt? How would you respond if Jesus told you to love somebody at work who, quite frankly, is incompetent, rude, and lazy, and pushes work off onto you? How would you respond if Jesus told you to love the person who mocks you because of your belief in Christ, who shows nothing but contempt for the things you value? And given our day and age, how would you respond if Jesus told you to love somebody who has different political views, the total opposite of yours? The truth of the matter is that Jesus does tell us to love those people. He does expect us to pray for them. How are we to love them? Before we address the how, though, I'm going to steal a page from every three-year-old's book and ask the question, why? Why are we to love our enemies? Elizabeth Morris, a woman <clears throat> from a small town in Kentucky, is a person who can answer the question, why? Why? She and her husband lost their only son, 18-year-old Ted, at the hands of a drunk driver. She was devastated. She was angry. And her anger intensified when the 24-year-old man who, who had killed Ted was given probation. She began to obsess over her son's death and about her son's killer. She fantasized about killing Tommy Piggage, the drink, drunk driver, with her own car. She, she actually tracked his movements, hoping to catch him violating his probation so he'd have to go to prison. Her bitterness and rage became a wedge in her relationship with her husband. She kept chewing on her anger over and over until it began to eat her up from the inside out. The turning point came when she came to the realization that her Heavenly Father had also lost his only son. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. She knew it was time to offer forgiveness to Tommy. And at first, it was an act of her will. She did not feel like giving forgiveness. But God worked in her and her husband, and eventually were actually able to establish a friendship with Tommy. And then one day, Tommy gave his life to Christ and was baptized by her husband, who was a part-time preacher. Her husband presided at Tommy's wedding, and now they attend church together. She said, I can't tell you how good it felt to get on with life To laugh again, to finally shake free from the anchor of hate that weighed me down. Why love our enemy? Because it sets us free from bitterness and rage that destroys us. Her decision to forgive and love Tommy influenced him for Christ, which leads us to the second reason to love our enemies, because it can win others to Christ. When they see a a radical, unnatural love and forgiveness of an enemy, it can win them to Christ. After the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was pressured to punish the South for all the bloodshed it had caused. And his response was, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Why love our enemies? Because Jesus died for all people. Because Jesus, uh, because no person is beyond the reach of God's love. Because as we love our enemies, our love from God for them points them to God. And because who knows, today's enemy may turn out to be tomorrow's brother or sister in Christ. The third answer to the question of why love our enemies is it tests our faith. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. As Philip Yancey says, in the final analysis, forgiveness, an act of love toward an enemy is an act of faith. But by forgiving one another, by forgiving another, I'm trusting that God is a, is a better justice maker than I am. When I love my enemy, when I release my, my, my right to get even, my faith is tested and strengthened. I show that I trust God to take care of things. I show that I trust God to deal with those who've wronged me. I show that I trust that God knows what to do. And since trust in God is is a definition of faith, how much we trust God in our reactions with those who hurt us, who are enemies, is a major indicator of the maturity and depth and authenticity of our faith. We may think we're pretty mature in the faith, may know the Bible well, may pray regularly, go to church consistently, might, might be a generous giver, might be a pretty dis- decent guy or gal. But Jesus asked us this question, how do you love those who really get under your skin, those who are out to get you? And the answer to that question shows how deep in Christ we have gone and how much we've allowed Christ to change our our life. And how much we understand grace. Why love our enemies? The the fourth answer is it distinguishes us as God's family. Look again at Matthew 5. Verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So again, when we love our enemies, when we love those against whom we are holding bitterness or anger or scorn or, or resentment, when we love them, the world sees that we're different. And that we resemble our, our father in heaven. And, and here's the sobering part. How we forgive and love our enemies, there's some correlation to our, our relationship with God the Father. Right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 14, Jesus said, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Why love our enemies? It distinguishes us. It marks us as God's children. And because first and foremost, God loved us while we were alienated by rebellion, while we were enemies of God. God still loved us. So there's the why. Now let's move to the how, the harder part. As St. Augustine put it, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him or her by whom they were struck. To help us get a handle on how to love our enemies, I'm borrowing an acrostic device from Lee Strobel, an author and pastor. And the acrostic spells out the word peace, which is, of course, what we're called to establish with other people, just as God has established peace with us through Jesus Christ. And the P in the peace process stands for pray. Pray for our enemies. Now, it might seem strange or phony to pray for somebody you, you dislike, Resent or hate. So, of course, the first person we need to pray for is ourselves. Go to God honestly in prayer and tell him, I don't want to love her. I don't want to forgive him. Please help me to do so. Now, of course, praying for, besides praying for ourselves, we are to pray for our enemies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, if you recall, was a Christian leader who was imprisoned and persecuted and executed finally under the Nazis in Germany. And Bonhoeffer said this regarding prayer for enemies. This is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. We stand by his side and plead for him to God. Now, when we do this, when we pray for our enemies, when we plead for him or her before God, God will change our attitude. Because there's something powerful about prayer. You, you can't really pray for somebody for a long time if you hold hatred against them. You cannot hate somebody indefinitely in the presence of God. So the surest way of killing bitterness or hatred is to pray for the person that we're tempted to hate. The second action to loving our enemy is the first E in peace, empathize. Empathize, of course, means to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else, to see things from their perspective or to view them from a different perspective. uh, When we empathize with others, we begin to see them from the perspective of their value to God. We see the value they have intrinsically because they are created in God's image. Even if that image has been distorted by sin, like all of of us. William Barclay tells a story told by Jewish rabbis that demonstrates how much God values all those he has created, even those uh, we might consider enemies. In the story, the angels of heaven begin to rejoice as the waters of the Red Sea cave in on the Egyptian soldiers who are chasing the Israelites. In the middle of their celebration, God lifts his hand to stop them. And he says, the work of my hands are sunk in the sea, and you would sing? Ezekiel 33, 11 asserts, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather... That they turn from their ways and live. When thinking about a person whom is your enemy, empathize. Consider how God views them. The third action step in loving our enemy is to act for them or to serve them. Luke 6, 27. Do good to those who hate you. Again, Jesus' words. So practically speaking, we are to help them when they need help, to offer congratulations when they succeed. To be generous when they're scraping bottom. To respond with kind words when they bait us with their speech. To look for ways to actively serve them. And in the process, our relationship with them will change. The fourth action step in loving our enemy is to confess to them. Not always, but often in any strained relationship, the blame can be shared. Sometimes jealousy, sometimes stubbornness or ambition. Sometimes it's simply just a bad attitude about somebody. And confession, admission of wrong, is directly tied to healing in a relationship. And few things can bring reconciliation faster than, than humbly admitting wrongdoing and asking for forgiveness. The fifth and final step in loving our enemy is to emulate God to them. Another way of putting that would be imitate God to them. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children... And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So whenever we have questions about how to love our enemies, we look of at the example of Jesus Christ. Who gave himself up for us, who sacrificed himself for us, who served and loved us even when we didn't deserve it. John thought puts it this way. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors, actually, while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. He kept praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He concludes by writing, if this cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? unless we can think we can excuse ourselves because, of course, Jesus was divine, he could pull it off, we see the response of the martyr Stephen in Acts 7. His last words as he was being stoned to death, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, we can love others, especially our enemies, like Jesus did. We're almost done. One more time out of chapter 5. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? If we want the world to recognize us as God's children, we are to love like God loves. And as Jesus points out, God sends the blessings of rain and sun to all people regardless of whether they follow him or believe in him or not. And he tells us that if we do not love our enemies, we are doing no more than those who do not claim to be God's children. Alfred Plummer sums it up by saying, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, to return good for evil is divine. And then finally, Jesus' statement in verse 48, a very intimidating verse, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what is he saying here? None of us are perfect, right? It's not possible to be perfect in this life. What's Jesus talking about? Well, the word perfect that Jesus uses here is different than the word perfect we use today. The word perfect we use today, we think of 100% pure, uh, without flaw or blemish. But the Greek word is is teleos. It's the sense of mature or whole. And has a sense of of, of, of of end or purpose. And therefore, if a person is, quote, perfect, it means that he realizes or she realizes a purpose for which they've been created and sent into the world. And they're actually pursuing that pers- purpose. And what, of course, is the purpose for which we are created? Genesis 126. Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. In other words, we are are created for the purpose of reflecting God's image to those around us. And what is God like? First John 4, 7, God is love. He constantly seeks the best of all people. He loves saint and sinner alike. He loves those who follow Jesus and those who don't. He loves those who obey and respect him and those who don't. He loves those who speak highly of him and even those who slander him. How are we to be, quote, perfect, mature, whole, doing God's purposes in our lives? We're to love like God, to follow Jesus' example. And among many things, we are to love our enemies and pray for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful. For the example of Jesus Christ. Lord, we fall short. The whole Sermon on the Mount convicts us. Every area we fall short, Lord. And I I know that I do, and so many of us fall short in this area of praying and loving those who are, quote, our enemies. Those who oppose us. Those that uh, cause us to get riled up. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work within us. That we would that we would try to love more like you, that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to love our enemies, to pray for them, to look to do good for them, so that you would work through us and in us to change us, but also to change them, that they would come to know the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.